This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Displaced Persons. And the author is Dr. Jonathan Rosen. And Jonathan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jonathan. Good morning. Displaced Persons. I'm going to read how you would introduce your book to a friend in just a sentence or two. This is what you said. A respected physician commits a critical error in the care of a patient and friend. In his remorse, he becomes consumed by the story of another dying patient whose life he had saved and who had been a World War II refugee. So we've got two stories kind of going on here at the same time. Uh, and obviously you're trying to uh, make a point here or open up a, a better understanding of what doctors go through with uh, the death of their patients. Why did you write the book? You know, I, I think that uh, physicians uh, tend to have a lot of pressure on them. They don't make um, uh, public uh, when they make errors. There's uh, no real forum for them to uh, uh, have an outlet for, for uh, their uh, problems when they, when they make errors and uh, Part of my motivation was to, to uh, help uh, bring this problem out. The uh, Institute of Medicine uh, put out a report about uh, four years ago called To Error is Human, and they talked about systemic errors in, in uh, medical practice, but uh, they didn't talk about uh, how individual physicians deal with errors that they may make, uh, problems they may have, how they cope with it with their families, with their patients. Um, about 20 years ago, I had written an article called... Um, Let's Stop Hiding Our Mistakes, which uh, tried to give a, form, a framework for how physicians could talk about errors uh, openly with other colleagues and uh, with their patients. And I think that we haven't really made a lot of progress since that time. Um, so I think that uh, when you can talk frankly with other physicians, at least you can um, have them uh, understand and uh, maybe not repeat those errors. But it just there's no formal place for that dialogue to take place. Now, you've been a practicing physician for 27 years and certainly have had a, a lot of different experiences dealing with this very emotional issue. How have other doctors received your book? How, what do they think about it? Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, they're, to start with, somewhat startled that, uh, that uh, we're bringing these issues out into the public. Uh, they've been kind of hidden under the bed a little bit. And... Um, I think they're uh, relieved that there's uh, somebody kind of championing, championing that kind of dialogue, which hasn't been occurring. So uh, I think it's been very supportive. Um, you know, you talk about, you see these kind of things on TV all the time, like med- uh, mortality conferences where somebody stands up in front of a group of doctors and they're uh, kind of bulleted by questions about why they did this or that. And it's a much more antagonistic kind of um dialogue than what I think is really productive. So to be able to discuss these issues, you know, where you went wrong, where you, where your patient's uh, interaction may have gone wrong in any kind of less 
a hostile environment, I think, is uh, helpful, helpful to physicians. So the main character, Miles Asher, Dr. Miles Asher? Yes. Now, he's fictional. Yes. But dealing with things that have happened in your life or happened to other doctors that you know? Yeah, I think if you, if you look at if I look at this book, uh, the uh, framework uh, around which it's built, meaning the um, kind of uh, general plot story, are basically uh, true. Any one of the uh, individual scenes in the book is uh, essentially fictional. So uh, I've kind of built a, uh, a uh, shingled house that starts out with a frame of based on reality, and the rest of it is, uh, is mostly made up. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, these things have happened. Well, you drew me right into your book with the opening scenes with the doctor being called to one of his patients' home, and here is... Uh, a blood-soaked uh, house from top to bottom because I guess his, uh, he had a pricked uh, vein somewhere in his foot, was it? But he didn't know how to stop it, and it just his whole blood just drained out of him and sprayed around. And, uh, you know, he, the doctor knew he was probably in, in, in desperation and, and just uh, was very, very frustrated about it. It was like, you know, not only for the patient... And the the probably the the serious feelings for the patient, but also the serious feelings for himself as the doctor. Yep, you know you get you get confronted with these um, sudden situations that uh, you know in this particular case is, is totally reversible, totally treatable, and uh, the patient uh, just wasn't able to figure out how to handle the problem. And I, I think in that scene, the physician was just frustrated that. Uh, it would have taken just a little bit of medical knowledge on the patient's part to prevent it to his own partic- that particular disaster. So this doctor, this Dr. Miles Asher, who's a respected physician, uh, and he's, you say he's burdened down with uh, guilt, and it's kind of taking over his life. Is that right? Yes. Uh, how, is it, how is it affecting uh, he and, like, his wife and his family and... Well, he he withdraws. You know, he essentially kind of um, sequesters himself, uh, tr- and uh, he he he. It's a, it's a daily kind of uh, process. You know, as a family physician, this doctor has relations all through the community, and um, working in a small community as he does, he uh, has to confront his patients in the uh, in the real world on a regular basis. But uh, he finds himself pulling back from all relationships, wondering. You know, well, the, who knows about his uh, fallibility? Who knows about the errors he's been he's made? He uh, finds that the community itself, which had been really nurturing for him, becomes a, uh, a kind of a hostile environment. Finds that he really can't uh, discuss these issues with his family because he's worried about their losing respect for him. So he just uh, sequesters himself. Does he start to uh, second guess his own uh, ability? Absolutely, yes. Uh, with that becomes uh, kind of this cascade. You know, the classically, surgeons, when they start to lose their, their you know, quote-unquote mojo, when they lose that, that kind of confidence, uh, everything tends to, uh, to go downhill. And I think similarly in a uh, medical situation, when you lose your confidence dealing with patients, you tend to question yourself, you tend to order more tests, you tend to refer more. The whole process becomes laborious. And, uh, you lose the joy of treating patients and healing them. So in order to deal with his guilt, as you say, uh, the 
doctor submerges himself in the life of Siegfried Zante. Is that his name? Yep, yep. And he is a, a refugee from World War II. Yes. Now tell us about this subplot that you've got going through the book, to, I guess to help Asher deal with all the guilt that he feels. Well, he had actually saved this patient's life, and they had been linked in a kind of a, a way because of that through Asher's career. And um, as this patient, uh, Siegfried Zante, is, is, is uh, facing a terminal illness himself, he presents Asher with, um, with his own kind of um, um, legacy of, a, of, a, of a, uh, his um, memoirs, essentially, that had been written uh, in a haphazard way to try and deal with uh, problems he had had dealing with the loss of his father during World War II. His father had been abducted by Nazis during World War II, and he never discovered his father's fate through uh, the 40 years. And so uh, trying to uh, work through uh, this issue about what happened to his father after World War II, he has uh, an exploration through uh, Latvia um, after the war and, re- and kind of... Um, revisits his own experience of what happened to him as a displaced person during World War II. As an 11-year-old, he had been uh, in displaced persons camps and and, uh, trekking from, you know, camp to camp, being uh, maltreated and uh, um, freezing cold, uh, uh, starving conditions, and uh, trying to discover what happened to his father that that put him in this position kind of forms a subplot of the the book. The... uh, Upshot being that uh, that his own parents, his own father's uh, crimes, have come to haunt him, and uh, in a similar way, uh, Asher's uh, crimes and uh, the ones of his own father have uh, come to haunt him also, and they and they uh, both merge at the end of the book to form a, a climax where uh, both uh, try to seek the redemption despite their uh, their flawed legacies. Well, you mentioned this word crimes, and uh, we don't want to go into all the details, but you, can you say some things about what these crimes are? Well, uh, the, um, you know, the, uh, Siegfried Zante's father had been abducted by Nazis, and uh, trying to find out what happened to his father, um, Zante actually ends up going to the Holocaust Museum in Israel, Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum, and exploring through the archives to find out exactly what the... Uh, the details of his father's uh, legacy in uh, during uh, World War II in the concentration camps really forms uh, one of the most powerful scenes in the book that uh, I won't reveal now. Right, right now, and then you also said the crimes of Asher's father. Asher's father had been a uh, a um, a well um, respected um, ophthalmologist, actually a a. a a famous ophthalmologist in in uh, New York City, who uh, also left uh, Asher a uh, a confused uh, legacy, having passed away under ambiguous circumstances. Uh, about um, while Asher was a resident in, in uh, medical school, and uh, he never was clear on what exactly happened with his father. So that becomes also a uh, substantial subplot in the book, trying to. Uh, and that's really also partly responsible for why Ash himself is so conflicted about his own life, uh, because he never really understood what happened with his father. So discovering that, uh, what happened with his father, also becomes a uh, major conflict for Asher. We all know that mistakes happen. Right. 
But when it comes to doctors making mistakes, obviously it's at a whole different level than a mechanic at the auto shop. But still, uh, how, how, do, how do, you, do you help in your book help to resolve this, uh, this I don't know what to call it. It's a situation that is... Fallibility. Uh, yeah, fallibility, and it's, it's kind of like a no-win situation. Well, I mean, I think when, uh, when you're in, in um, the medical profession or any profession where you're dealing with people's lives, you have to accept that fallibility in a certain way. I think what uh, got Asher so, um, so uh, overcome by his own uh, fallibility was um, this problem where he never resolved his own father's uh, death and also that uh, the person who uh, he had uh, erred upon was a close um, friend, and it became uh, that much more dramatic to him. And, uh, you know, that kind of um, relationship that you have with uh, some of your patients becomes, uh, you know, almost a barrier to getting good care because you feel so close to them that uh, making an error becomes that more emotionally charged. This certainly is aimed at uh, fellow doctors as readers, but it's also aimed at the general public to better understand doctors and what they go through? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, uh, medical shows on TV and in, the, in the, the movies are rampant, and I think that we're all fascinated by that kind of moment when um, life and death are, uh, are meeting and that, and that kind of moment about the emotional charge issues when, um, when uh, we as patients have to uh, confront that situation and don't know you know, in that uncertain environment, what's going to happen? And uh, the more familiarity you get with it, the more you can kind of cope, I think. You also received a very high recognition for your writing. Tell us about the competition that your writing was entered into. Yeah, the Wisdom Faulkner Award is an annual um, novel competition for uh, unpublished authors, and uh, I uh, was able to uh, receive a semifinalist award in that competition this past year. Um, and uh, they get about 4,000 entrants, and about uh, 40 of those, those become semifinalists. And although I didn't make it into the, uh, into the uh, award circle, I was very proud to get that. Well, congratulations. That's a great accomplishment. It's a great accomplishment just to publish a book, let alone receive an award for your writing. So that's, that's great, Doctor. Uh, any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with about displaced persons? Well, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's uh, an emotionally charged issue. I think that uh, um, some of the intensity comes out in the book in, in uh, a variety of terrific uh, scenes that uh, I think uh, grab the reader as the first scene does. And uh, I think that despite its, um, its difficult uh, content, I think uh, it, it has an uplifting message and uh, will be fun to read uh, as, you, as you go through it. Well, that's uh, probably... The uplifting message you uh, wouldn't know from uh, the beginning of the book, but that's the <laughs> that's the the uh, legacy of the book. That's what you're trying to leave the re- the reader with. Yes, I, I mean I believe that um, you know uh, as we all seek to redeem any our our uh, past mistakes, we we think that uh, there's no uh, hope. But I think that uh, um, as long as we keep. Uh, plugging along and uh, a positive outlook and uh, get the support of those around us. We can, uh, we can overcome our own uh, flaws. Well, Jonathan, tell us how to get your book. 
um, BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com. Um, the store should have it. So, um, iUniverse.com. Yep. Well, we want to thank you, Jonathan, for being on iUniverse Radio. I appreciate you the time that you've uh, allowed me to spend on it. That was Dr. Jonathan Rosen. He is the author of his book, Displaced Persons. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Survive Downsizing, How to Keep Your Job and Become Indispensable to Your Company. And the author is Dr. Donald Minnick, and Don joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Don. Hi, Steve. Well, this is very timely, obviously. The news is filled with companies laying off, with downsizing, the the unemployment rate is skyrocketing. These are scary times for a lot of people. Here is a way to learn how to keep your job, and that's that's the point you're you're obviously trying to make very emphatically, right? That's correct. There are skills to learn. Absolutely. Tell us about your background. Well, Steve, I'm a actually a clinical psychologist by training. My doctorate is in clinical psychology. But uh, early on in my professional career, I got involved in organization consulting and uh, have been doing uh, primarily organization consulting work for the last 25-plus uh, years. You say this in introducing your book to a friend uh, in a sentence or two. This is what, how you write. 
Would you like to know the specific skills required to survive downsizing and how to acquire those skills? Would you like to be considered a key contributor in your organization and as one indispensable to the company? Would you like to develop real emergent leadership skills regardless of your position in the company? This book shows you how. So it's a very hands-on tool to help us. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about let's talk about who it's really aimed at. Who who are, who are the people that really need to read your book? Yeah, uh, certainly, Steve. Those employees who are worried about their jobs in this era of downsizing, I believe the book and this model has something to say to them. Um, uh, employees are really concerned with making themselves indispensable to their organization. And I believe this book is really unique in its capacity to to help individuals build actual skills and behaviors that can be immediately translated into their work environment. And this will help them be seen as individuals that are indispensable, that need to be kept in that organization. Now, I think there's a couple of other target markets as well. Uh, unfortunately, for some folks, uh, the worst has already happened, and they've, they've lost their jobs. And the question for them becomes, how can I distinguish myself from the crowd of job seekers and really put myself on, a, on the fast track for a quick hire? A lot of this book is focused around interviews that we've done with hiring managers who have been in the position of choosing, really, the best and brightest people to staff their resized organization. So, so this model really is a blueprint for... Um, how to get on the fast track for, for getting hired into a new job. We have something to say about how to position your resume, how to position your interview, which really highlight those survival skills that managers are telling us they are looking for. So there is a way to emphasize your skill base. There's a way to do that that really helps you gain a strong competitive edge in the marketplace speaking directly to those skills that hiring managers have told us that they value. So, so clearly individuals in the job search, outplacement firms, search firms, I think would find this book a, a helpful tool for them. A couple of other markets that I think might be real important, a couple of other segments of folks who need to have a look at this book. Um, we know that in American business, economic cycles come and go. So economic, uh, periods of economic downturn lead to downsizing as a business strategy. This is not the first time this has happened. This has happened many times in American business. And it's likely to happen again. So the, the message there is even folks who have landed that new job, this is not the time to relax your efforts at becoming valuable to your organization. It used to be that, that, uh, that being highly competent in your technical area insured continued employment, we don't have that guarantee anymore. So so the question becomes, even when I've landed my new job, what do I have to do in those first few days and months to really distinguish myself and become indispensable in my company? How can I move forward quickly to be a key contributor? So this model will show you what kinds of things you need to do to sort of rise above countless other talented people and become a real leader in your organization. And, and by the way, you can be a leader in your organization regardless of your job title and regardless of your position on the organization chart. 
so that's a real important, uh, real important uh, uh, market segment to to have access to this book. A couple of others that I that I want to be sure and mention. We we believe that clearly, although the the skills described in this book are useful to individuals who want to be key contributors, an organization that is filled with people who practice the kind of survival skills that we're talking about, that organization moves quickly in the direction of high performance as well. So another sort of interesting uh, market for this book would be human resources departments that are really looking for a teachable model of interpersonal excellence. Uh, the skills that we talk about in this book can be customized to highlight and reinforce a company's own competency model. So training events, team development uh, events, coaching activities that build on these skills would really be ideal for HR departments that are looking, again, for that teachable model of interpersonal excellence and, and system understanding, which this model provides. Don, what makes your book unique with all the other books that are out there about, uh, you know, finding that job, keeping that job, making yourself indispensable? Yeah, Steve, I, I tell you, this, the important thing to know about this book is not just, uh, it's not just ideas that pop from a consultant's head. It's not simply a list of success skills that sometimes you see in the business literature. Uh, this, this book and the model that's described in this book is based on hundreds of interviews that we've done in organizations. And these are organizations that are massive Fortune 500 size organizations down to relatively small entrepreneurial startups. And the people we interviewed were people who had actually survived a round of downsizing and the hiring managers who selected them. So this is, this is real life experiences based on, uh, people who are in a unique position to know the answers to these questions. And so we've taken this survey information and sort of crafted it into this model that really helps individuals apply this knowledge immediately in their work environment. Um, so that's an important thing to know. It's, it's data that has been sort of validated in the crucible of real-life organizational work. What were some of your greatest challenges in writing this book? Well, really, I think one of the hardest things was, was shaping the information from the hundreds of interviews that we conducted into a real practical and useful model. And so what we did was pull that information, begin to pull that information together. And once we kind of had the bones of that model together, we really set about searching the writings of really the most well-respected business minds in the country, Peter Drucker, Tom Peters, Jim Collins, Margaret Wheatley, Peter Senge, other folks of that caliber, and we really wanted to validate the model that we were building. And I think what's come out of that is is a real set of skills that, uh, again, uh, combines interpersonal excellence with system understanding, and it's really kind of a blueprint for organization survival. So it's a little bit different than sort of a list of skills. Uh, it really is crafted in such a way that it provides uh, a description of each of the skills that were identified, as well as uh, uh, kind of activities and, and exercises and uh, uh, skill development tools that help people put that knowledge into practice immediately. 
Changing times required requires changed people, doesn't it? They have it's to right. make a dip. They have to change. It certainly does. It certainly does. And as I said earlier, you know, we used to be able to rely on sheer technical competence to keep our job, and and that's just not the case anymore. There have been lots of uh, technically talented people who have lost their jobs, and the people that become the most invi- most valuable uh, organization pr- contributors at this point in time are people who can go beyond just their technical skill and apply some of this uh, this uh, interpersonal understanding, this system knowledge in a way that's going to make their organization function more successfully. Organizations are different. Organizations are leaner now. They're more team-based. They're more customer-focused. And so uh, that requires a, a different set of skills. Now, there's also a feature that you have in your workshops that you wanted to talk about. It's called a 360-degree assessment tool. Yeah, this is, this is the organization survivor scorecard. And what we've done is provide a tool that really assists individuals in assessing their levels of ability in each of the survival instincts and the survival skills that we identify. And using this instrument really helps individuals sort of assess their strengths in each of these areas, and, and the instrument is tied to specific development activities that can help them uh, sharpen their skills and, and really increase their effectiveness. So in the training workshops that we do around this model, we use that instrument and ask people to collect data uh, from their colleagues that's really going to help them understand uh, what their strengths are and areas that they might need to develop in each one of these uh, skill sets. Is this written more like a textbook or a technical manual, or is it a easier read? You know, I think, uh, well, I certainly hope it's an easier read. It's definitely not a textbook. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's real, practical, I hope, useful advice. It, uh, it, it, it builds a case for each one of the survival skills that we identify, and then each chapter has uh, activities and exercises to help sharpen that ability. Uh, readers are able to assess their skills in each one of those areas and then go about building and developing those skills if they care to. And this book is written uh, as part of a series that you're going to uh, produce? Yes, yes. This is actually number one in the series and really um, sort of outlines the model and and goes into the model in great detail. Um, And some of the other books in the series sort of address those other markets that I talk about. Uh, there's uh, a book called How to Get Picked from the Crowd, The Organization Survivor's Guide to Landing the New Job, uh, Distinguish Yourself, The Survivor's Guide to the First 100 Days in Their New Job. Uh, we're writing a book for uh, managers called Retain the Best and Brightest, The Organization Survivor's Talent Management Guide for Executives. And then we also uh, are interested in focusing a little bit on the concept of leader emergence. And this would really be for... Uh, for uh, individuals who maybe are fresh out of business school, launching their career, who really want to uh, really want to understand the skills that are going to be needed to help them emerge as leaders in their organization. Again, regardless of what their initial job title might be, regardless of their place on the organization chart, we know that leaders are are identified at every level in the organization, and this information will will help in that uh, in that uh, search. I guess your book is best summed up from a saying I remember from a philosopher 
who said you must look in the mirror and say, if you want things to change, then you've got to change. That sounds right on target. Well, are there any closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with, Don? Uh, nothing comes to mind, Steve. I, I, you know, I think you, you've done a good job in helping me, helping me identify the important parts of the book. Um, uh, I hope people will go out there and look for it, and, and um, I, I look forward to getting feedback from people maybe who have read the book about uh, whether or not they found the, uh, the concept useful. And you've had some very uh, good reviews. Yeah, we've had, we've had a few. We sure have. Well, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Don, tell us how to get your book. Um, I, I would say the best way right now is to go to, uh, I do have an author website. It's www.donaldminnick.com. That's M-I-N-N-I-C-K. And the book is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and the iUniverse site. So readers could go to any of those places and, uh, and uh, get, a, get a hold of a copy. Well, we appreciate again, Don, for you being with us. Thanks so much, Steve. That was Dr. Donald Minnick. He is the author of his book, Survive Downsizing, How to Keep Your Job and Become Indispensable to Your Company. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on toginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives?, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Buckley's Story, Lessons from a Feline Master Teacher. And the author is Ingrid King, and she joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ingrid. Hello, Steve. Good to have you with us. I'd like to read something that you wrote at the beginning of your book. I like this. Just a short uh, paragraph. I have always believed that animals come into our lives to teach us, first and foremost, they teach us about unconditional love, but they also teach us to stretch and grow, to reach beyond our self-imposed limits, and to expand our consciousness. 
They take us to places we did not think were possible for us to go. I've been fortunate to have a number of these animals in my life. Obviously, you're a real animal lover. There's no doubt. Yes, I am. Now, your profession, you've been involved in uh, that profession as well, right? Yes, I have. I have been working in various facets of the veterinary profession for almost 12 years. I've done everything from cleaning cages to managing a veterinary hospital, and I loved the interaction not just with the animals but also with the animals-humans. Now, tell us why you wrote the book. Uh, Well, you kind of led into that with reading my introduction. Um, I have always felt that animals are teachers, and Buckley was just one of the most amazing teachers I've come across. She changed my life in ways that I never could have imagined. So I really wanted to share her story, but it's also more than just her story. There are really three layers to the book. Uh, It it is the story of how her presence in my life and the lessons she taught me led me to make some major changes in my own life, but it's also the story of what it was like living with a cat with a terminal illness. In Buckley's case, that was heart disease, and and all that comes with that, um, making treatment decisions, maintaining a positive outlook in the face of a very poor prognosis, and ultimately having to make end-of-life decisions for her, and then also dealing with the uh, devastating grief that comes with losing a pet. And and then it's also the story of the amazing deep connection that exists between animals and humans, and, and it's a connection that I really feel is eternal, and it really transcends just this physical dimension. Why do people get so attached to pets? Well, I think one of the reasons is that... We Pets love us unconditionally, and it's not something that we experience from a lot of the humans we have in our lives. Uh, our parents are supposed to love us unconditionally, but we all know that that's not always the case. Um, and animals really provide that kind of a connection, and once you've experienced that, it's just amazing to, to have had that kind of an experience. Now, you love all animals, but you're especially attached to cats. Yes, I'm definitely a a cat person. Why is that? I I love their independence. I'm a very independent spirit myself, so their independence really resonates with me. Uh, Unlike dogs, you love a cat on their terms, not on your own terms. And for some reason, that really appeals to me because I guess it feels to me that once a cat loves you and chooses you as his or her person, that's something really special. You say that animals have so much to teach us if we're willing to listen with our hearts, not just our heads. Yes, I think that is one of the core uh, teachings, so to speak, of, of my book. Um, animals have a way of opening our heart, and once your heart opens, magic happens, your life will change, your life will expand. And there are obviously many different ways to open your heart, but for for me, animals have just always been uh, a way to make that happen in a very easy and and, uh, really uh, nice way. You also said that she made you reevaluate your personal and professional life. My goodness, uh, a cat did that? 
Yeah, it was quite amazing. And some of that I didn't realize until I looked at it in retrospect how much of an impact she had on some decisions I made uh, about a year after I met her. Buckley was one of the most freedom-loving little cats I had ever met. Um, She had very strong ideas of what she wanted and didn't want. And when she did not want something, she made it very clear to everyone involved that uh, this was going to happen on her terms. And I had always been uh, someone who loved her freedom, her independence. I found that it wasn't quite reflected in my professional life yet. I loved my job at the animal hospital, and I had a lot of freedom in terms of making decisions and, uh, you know, running things. But it still wasn't the same as working for myself, having my own business. And I did eventually leave the animal hospital and start my own business. And I really feel that Buckley's free spirit helped me make that decision. Now, why why was Buckley such a favorite? Now, you've had other pets before. Oh, yes, absolutely. You've Um, had other cats that that you love dearly? Yes, and they've also... um, you know, taught me various lessons, and they've caused me to make changes in my life. But I think with Buckley, it was a combination of just the huge spirit that she was, but also that I was in a place in my life where I was ready to hear those lessons. It's almost kind of a case of when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And in in my case, the teacher just happened to be a seven-pound little cat. Now, this takes place from, what, the spring of 2005 through what? Through uh, November 2008. So that's all the time she was with you? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, when she first came to live with me, which was about uh, a year and a half after I met her, uh, she was diagnosed with heart disease about six months later. And at the time, her heart disease was not very severe, but it progressed very quickly and uh, in, a, in April of 2008, uh, she received a very poor prognosis, and that's when things got a little tough, and uh, I share my experience of what, what it was like, both from uh, the medical angle of how to treat the illness, but more so from the emotional perspective of how do you cope when someone tells you that this animal that you love so much only has three to six months to live. When you go through trying times, as we all do, do you think it's, do you think the animal plays such an important part in our lives because we can talk to the animal, even though the animal doesn't really talk back to us, but it's somebody to talk to if we don't have anyone else? Um, Sure, I think that's part of it. And and actually, you know, I, I think they do talk back. It's just at a different level. They don't talk back to us with words, it's, it's on a heart-to-heart level that they talk to us. And I think it's, it's really important during difficult times, especially when the challenges are because of what a pet is going through, that we get out of our heads and listen with our hearts. And, and it can be very challenging, but at the same time, our pets are also master teachers again because they live in the moment. They don't worry about their prognosis or the fact that they just had a bad blood test result or anything like that. They just fully focus on whichever moment they're in and and try and enjoy it as much as they still can. Do you think Buckley understood that you were going through some tough times? 
I think she did, and and I really made an effort to not stay in a negative place when I was around her as much as I could, because I do believe that our animals pick up on our energy, and I I didn't want her to pick up on my own fears and worries, and, you know, sometimes I was better at it than others, but I really tried to make uh, an effort to stay positive. You talk about this book would appeal to readers who are interested in spirituality. Now, that is something that probably most people wouldn't, when you think about animals, or maybe they would, now, now that I think about it. I mean, you know, you come from nature. Uh, maybe there's much more to that than we just on the surface uh, think about. Well, I, what I found when I when I thought about, you know, what she really taught me, I really found that some of the lessons really were universal spiritual lessons. And I think I think you're right when you said nature is a way that, that a lot of people access their spiritual side, and animals are part of nature. And I, I believe that they're much more connected with, you know, something greater than ourselves, whether we call it spirit or source or God. And by by observing an animal, it, it's it's almost an easy way to make that connection ourselves because, again, it gets us out of our heads and gets us into our hearts, and that's just a totally different level of connecting with spirit. What was the most challenging part of writing this book? The most challenging part was really the emotional part of writing it. On the one hand, writing the book was a large part of my own healing process and coping with her loss, but on the other hand, uh, going through you know, all the revisions and the rewrites, especially of the chapters that deal with, uh, you know, the end of her life, it, it was very difficult. And to this day, I still have a difficult time reading the last two chapters. And what would you say makes this book so much different from other animal books, books about uh, the favorite pet or stories about animals that inspire us? Well, I think probably the biggest difference is that it does add in that spiritual dimension because I do share some of my spiritual beliefs as part of, you know, the teachings that I received from her. And then I also think that my background in the veterinary profession adds in another layer in terms of helping people sort through how do you get reputable information you know, ask your vet questions, don't just accept the diagnosis, follow your intuition. And I think that's a little different from a lot of the other books in the, in the genre that are on the market. Now, your professional background also is highlighted in this book, which it can uh, your insights can help people. I hope so. Um, I, I've found that uh, some of my early readers gave me feedback that there were some books, uh, some things that I cover in the book that, uh, to me, as having worked in the profession for all these years, were sort of just normal, and I assumed everybody knew this, but a lot of people apparently don't. For example, uh, when the time came for Buckley to, uh, where I had to let go and, and had to uh, have her put to sleep, my veterinarian came to my house, and it was a very peaceful a uh, very spiritual experience. Of course, it was difficult and gut-wrenching at the same time, but rather than having to take her to the sterile and you know somewhat cold environment of a veterinary practice to have this done in my own home was such a comforting thing. And 
I found that a lot of people don't know that that could even possibly be an option, and I'm, I'm a very strong believer that that's a question everyone should ask their vet while the pet's healthy and not wait until they get to a point where it's an emergency. What's interesting to me is recently um, my grown children, we were over at a friend's house where uh, uh, a dog and a cat, they have a large uh, back uh, wooded area behind their house, and they buried some of their pets back there. And so we buried our dog of 13 years and this cat of 14 years. And my kids, grown kids now, went out you know, went out into the backyard to kind of look at where they were buried. That was, that was kind of interesting, the, you know, obviously the impact these animals had upon them. Yeah, and I think it's important to have, you know, those kinds of rituals because just like with, with you know, when we lose people in our lives, we need to give ourselves time to, to really acknowledge the loss and to give, give ourselves time to mourn. Well, Ingrid, tell us how to get your book. The book is available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. It's also available directly from iUniverse. In fact, if you go to my website, which is ingridking.com, you can find all the buying options there. And the website also has more information about me and the book, including an excerpt. Does it have some and, pictures? And there are pictures. <laughs> so we can see Buckley. Of course. Yes. <laughs> And you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter. I love to connect with my readers. Well, very good, Ingrid. Well, we appreciate you sharing your book, Buckley's Story, Lessons from a Feline Master Teacher. Thank you so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you for the opportunity, Steve. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.